My name is Omaya Jones, and this is the Arkansas Times Week in Review podcast for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're taking a deeper look at Arkansas state-funded grants to religious institutions with reporter Matt Campbell. Then Editor-in-Chief Austin Bailey updates us on efforts to get an abortion amendment on the ballot despite the lack of support from national groups. And we're talking about much, much more. First, some updates on some lawsuits related to the Lord's Ranch. On Thursday, KARK Samantha Boyd reported that Alonza Giles, who currently sits on the Board of Corrections, was named as a defendant in one of the lawsuits against the Lord's Ranch. Though this has been known since November of last year, it's gone largely unremarked upon until now. Managing Editor Benjamin Hardy is here to update us on the developments. Can you start by telling us what this new legal action is? Sure. So there have been five lawsuits that have been filed since November that make Fairly, a fairly similar set of allegations, so there's different anonymous plaintiffs in each one. They all concern the Lord's Ranch, which we've talked about a number of times on this podcast already. It's a former behavioral health institution in northeast Arkansas that served uh, mostly teenagers, and there were, I think, hundreds, maybe thousands of, of kids sent through there in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Uh, it closed down in 2016, and then uh, this, this, these new lawsuits claim that uh, kids there were subjected to sexual abuse by senior staff members, as well as threatened and retaliated against, physically abused if they if they sought help or tried to report the abuse to others. The, the Lord's Ranch was ran by a man t- named Ted Sewell. Um, he served as executive director of the facility. Um, his his mother and father started the facility back in the 70s, but he was really the person in charge for until it, until it closed down in 2016. And it closed down amid allegations that that Sewell had bribed a state Medicaid official. He was then convicted of of bribery in 2016 and sent to federal prison, but set free in 2019 by then-President Donald Trump, which is something we'll get to in a second. Uh, What exactly is Alonzo Giles accused of? The lawsuit identifies him. The lawsuits identify him as an underling, quote-unquote, of of Ted Sewell, of the Sewell family. So he was not the guy in charge of the ranch, but he was sort of a, a senior deputy administrator there. So it's, it's important to note that he's he's named as a defendant in the lawsuits, but he, the lawsuits do not claim that he himself was sexually abusing kids. They do say that he covered up the crimes of others, including a senior staffer there named Emmett Presley, who allegedly uh, sexually abused dozens of boys over the years. And the lawsuits also claim, you know, they make a number of claims that he, you know, there's no way that he could not have known that, that this abuse was going on. And he took steps to uh, to prevent it from coming to light, basically. There's a quote that says, Alonzo Giles never once lifted a finger to help the children or prevent their sexual abuse. Okay. And why didn't this happen sooner? Right. So, uh, so I mean, we reported on, on the lawsuits uh, for the past several months, including back in November, but... Um, we focus more on Ted Sewell and the Lord's Ranch in general than Alonzo Giles. As I, as I said, he was sort of a, you know, a, an, uh, a deputy to the Sewell family. And uh, so it's interesting that it is getting attention now. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what made KRK report on it recently, but I think it's at least partly because of Republican legislators who have been talking about it recently. And uh, Senator Ben Gilmore, who's a close ally of Governor Sanders in the legislature, he's, uh, he was one of the primary sponsors of the big pieces of pr- prison legislation that came down in 2023. He went public and is sort of saying, this is, these, al- these allegations are outrageous. Alonzo Giles sh- should step down. Now, 
why why now? Well, the likeliest reason is that the Board of Correction is at the center of this political dispute with Sarah Sanders and Attorney General Tim Griffin. And that's been going on for a while. Um, we've reported on it quite a bit if you anybody wants to get you know further context there. But basically, the Board of Correction is, is at odds with the governor, and they're sort of locked in this constitutional standoff over who has authority in the prison system. Now, the thing is, I mean, Sarah Sanders can't just fire members of the, of the Board of Corrections. That's you know part of the pr- problem for her here. They, they serve typically seven-year terms, but she can appoint new ones when seats open up. So, you know, when, when Senator Gilmore is calling on Alonzo Giles to, to step down, I mean, part of the sort of unspoken thing here is like that would open up a seat on the Board of Corrections for the governor to make an appointment. Mm, okay. So you mentioned Senator Gilmore. Uh, do we know how other lawmakers have reacted? Yeah, I mean, there's been I've, I've seen at least a few other Republican legislators, you know, uh, go on Twitter to say that these, the allegations are horrible and that they, that he should step down right away. Uh, I did ask the governor whether he should step down and uh, did not get a response from her office. But Attorney General Tim Griffin said that he agreed with Senator Gilmore and, and Giles should go right away. OK. Uh, and then how are the Huckabees connected to this in other ways besides just Sarah being governor? Yeah. So, yeah, this is where it gets a little complicated for the governor, and I'm speculating a little bit about, you know, people's motivations here. But Alonzo Giles was originally appointed to the Board of Corrections by Huckabee, or by Sarah Sanders' father, Mike Huckabee. That was back in 2006. Um, He served about four years on the Board of Corrections, finished out a person's term, um, and then left in 2010, and then he was reappointed to the board by Asa Hutchinson in 2022. Okay, but... Um, yeah, again, Mike Huckabee originally appointed this guy to the Board of Corrections. And that is important because Mike Huckabee is uh, an ally of Ted Sewell, the man who actually ran the Lord's Ranch. And in fact, Mike Huckabee is the person that we think is largely responsible for getting his sentence commuted. He's He wrote a letter to Donald Trump. He said himself in 2019 that he was lobbying for the release of Sewell, that he thought that Sewell did nothing wrong, that his conviction for bribery was, um, was unfounded. Um, there are other... Other people that also did that, like U.S. Attorney Bud Cummins, but Huckabee, we think, is the, the main driving force behind it. So, and this is where it gets uncomfortable. If, if Alonzo Giles is culpable in the lawsuits, as, as they, the complaints claim, you know, if he knew about child sexual abuse for many years at this facility where he was an administrator and actively covered it up, actively, you know, turned kids away or threatened them with, with retaliation when they attempted to, to seek help, if that is true, then it also follows that, you know, it's the same thing is true about Ted Sewell, who was the person actually in charge there, and that he also was aware of these you know, these awful allegations and was taking steps to cover it up. I mean, it's hard to say, like, well, I think what the lawsuit says about this one guy is correct, but what it says about, you know, this other guy who was in charge was not. So if that were the case, then that would be pretty uncomfortable for Mike Huckabee with his decades-long association with Ted Sewell. He appointed Ted Sewell to to a board, it was very controversial at the time, back in the early 2000s, that had broad oversight over child welfare and, uh, and, and youth behavioral health facilities like his own. He was criticized for it at the time. He, um, he got Sewell released from prison. And you know, I don't know if Sarah Sanders has any sort of, you know, I had no idea really, like relationship with the Sewell family, but her father definitely does. I think also it would not look great for Donald Trump. I mean, I don't know how much people would care about that or not, but I mean, the, if he released this man from prison himself, who um, was responsible for, you know, for doing what the lawsuits allege, that doesn't look good. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Benji. 
On Tuesday this week, Politico, a news magazine typically focused on Washington politics, had a report on efforts to get on the ballot, an initiative that would loosen restrictions on abortion in the state of Arkansas. The focus of the report was that despite local enthusiasm for the campaign, no national organizations had joined the push to collect signatures in the form of financial support. Here to fill us in on what's going on is Arkansas Times Editor-in-Chief Austin Bailey. Um, hi, Austin. So the first question is, why aren't big national funders pitching in for the Arkansas effort? So Arkansas is its own creature, right? And it's a unique spot, and national messaging just doesn't really work here. National strategy just doesn't work here that well. So the, the amendment that's being brought forward by Arkansans for Limited Government is really specifically tailored to the wishes and concerns of people in Arkansas. So it includes abortion access up to 18 weeks after conception in cases of rape and incest, fatal fetal anomalies, and to save the health of the mother. So that, you know, it seems to, to suit what Arkansans want, but national funders just don't, don't love this. Um, they've said that this this level of access is less than what Roe had allowed for, and they don't want to support those efforts. They don't want to give up ground. So Arkansas supporters are in this tough spot where they're they're pushing a measure that is tailored to fit Arkansas and that they feel like Arkansas voters will support, but national funders are just, it's not enough for them. So they're having to do this on their own. So what's happening with the petition? Do we know how the signature collection is going? So I think it's going pretty well. I talked to Lauren Coles today. She's um, somebody who's who's helping to, to lead up those efforts. I know they're, you know, a few thousand in, I think more than a few thousand in on getting their signatures, uh, you know, but, you know, they have to, to collect more than 90,000. So that's that's um, a tall hill to climb. Um, they'll have till July 5th. And, you know, it's poss- you know, it's an expensive and, and hard job. And it's possible that national funders may may buy in as, as we as we go along. I, and there are some rallies being organized They're They're, they're doing a good job. And we'll just have to see how it goes from now till July 5th. And there were some other reproductive health news out of Alabama, where the state Supreme Court determined that frozen embryos are people. What are the implications of that? The implications are huge. So these embryos are so tiny that you cannot see them without a microscope. Um, These embryos don't survive outside of freezers unless they're implanted. Um, So if they're considered people, then if a freezer gets unplugged or if... um, some embryos are needed and some some aren't that if 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 a couple decides not to use all the embryos that are created they could be potentially held responsible for murder hospitals of course don't want to be liable for murder doctors don't want to be liable for murder so you know, w- with that over their heads, I think we're going to see a lot of healthcare providers not want to offer IVF. The Alabama court termed a new phrase, or at least I hadn't heard it before, and I find it very disturbing, extra uterine children um, is what how they describe these embryos. So there's a connotation that these what are what are clumps of cells are actually children that could run around and jump and play once they're thawed out, and that's very bizarre and it's it's just not not the case. You know, we're watching this unfold. A lot of us knew that that birth control and IVF were in danger when Roe fell, even though everyone acted like we were being overly dramatic. But here we are. Have you been keeping up with like the Republican Party's reaction to the Alabama decision? So uh, I have a little bit. I saw that um, Jason Rapert, um, who's, you know, kind of 
not as important around here as he used to be since he is not a state senator anymore. But he is elated, seems just delighted by this, and wants to make sure that, you know, we recognize personhood from the moment of fertilization on. So, I don't know. Usually if Jason Raper is excited about something, I am not excited (laughs) about it. Well, we can leave it there. Uh, Thanks, Austin. Yeah, thank you. This week, Matt Campbell reported on the Arkansas Department of Public Safety's new Right to Worship grant program to help nonprofit ideology-based spiritual religious entities enhance security measures. Since then, 31 religious entities applied for grants, and funds have been awarded to six of them for a total of $228,000. To give us more details, here's Matt Campbell. Can you start by telling us what the rationale for the fund is? Um, I guess big picture, it was you know the governor said that there's been an increase in violence and attacks on churches and places of worship, especially since uh, the Israel-Hamas thing started back in October. There's not a lot of factual support for that. Uh, it's more, there have been some threats, sort of like broad threats that were made, but nothing in Arkansas anyway that shows there have been actually any attacks, but that was sort of what she was building on was almost the the thought that there could be attacks on some of these churches as we go forward. And she's wanted to provide money for certain churches to increase their, you know, fences and lighting and security cameras and police presence and that kind of thing. Okay. And then do we know the criteria for getting the money? It's pretty loose. Uh, you basically had to be in Arkansas, be a 501c3 nonprofit, have had some sort of, like, quote, threat or attack within the last 12 months, and then have some sort of kind of ongoing need or like a perceived threat going forward. And as long as you hit those four, that seems to be all that was required. And even then it was kind of iffy. Like you didn't, some of the, some of what passed for threats on these applications wasn't, wasn't so much a threat. It was like somebody heard something from somebody else. So like the, the definition of threat in this is real loose. Like the criteria are very loose. All right. Okay. And what are the organizations that have received money so far? Probably going to mispronounce some of these words, and I apologize in advance, but there's the Congregation B'nai Israel in Little Rock, uh, Shabbat Lubavitch in Little Rock, uh, Congregation Agudath Achim in Little Rock, and then there's Subiaco out in Logan County, and then Congregation House of Israel in Hot Springs, and St. Mary's Catholic Church in Hot Springs. Okay. And is there anything that distinguishes the organizations that got the money and those that didn't? It was strange. For some of them, it almost seemed like they didn't get money because they were too honest in their applications. Uh, There was a synagogue up in uh, northwest Arkansas that mentioned these uh, this bomb threat that went out to a bunch of Jewish uh, churches in Arkansas and uh, I guess in the region back in December. And uh, they mentioned that, and they said, but, you know, that, w- that went to everybody, so, like, that wasn't really a threat to us. They wound up not getting money. But then a couple of the churches that, or I guess all three of the, the Jewish churches in Little Rock that got it, cited that same attack and claimed, that, like, that that was, a, you know, a threat to them, and they got money for it. And then the only other ones that had a threat that didn't get money were, seemed to be, like, churches that asked for too much. Uh, there was a St. Joseph Catholic Church up in Fayetteville asked for something like $110,000 for, you know, lighting and fencing, and they didn't get any money. But they, I mean, they had an actual, you know, somebody had called up and was threatening to show up with a gun and everything, but they didn't get any money out of the deal. And then has the grant process been transparent? Not really. They provided the, 
applications, the state police provided the applications when I asked for them. But then I followed up and I was asking for, you know, communications between some of these committee members. They said there weren't any. And they found a couple little emails back and forth now where it seemed like nobody really knew what the process was until they showed up. They're saying that there's there were no score sheets uh, to evaluate any of these applications, no notes from anybody. It seems like they just sort of showed up one day, were told, here, these are the ones we're thinking, and just kind of gave an up or down vote and called it a day. Thanks, Matt. We'll continue to keep an eye on it. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks. And now, here's some news from around the state. I'm a Republican. I've been a lifelong Republican. A group called Republicans for Ukraine ran a one-minute digital ad urging members of the House of Representatives, including U.S. Rep. Steve Womack of Arkansas's 3rd Congressional District, to support the recent aid package that was passed in the U.S. Senate, which would give an additional $95.4 billion in foreign aid to Ukraine. The bill also includes military aid for Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine. Attorney General Tim Griffin signed off on a ballot title for the measure that would expand access to medical marijuana. Arkansas for Patients Access will now need to collect 90,704 signatures by July 5th to get the measure on the ballot. If enacted, the measure would, among other things, allow pharmacists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants to certify patients for the program in addition to medical doctors, allow healthcare professionals to certify patients based on any debilitating condition, not just the 18 qualifying conditions in the 2016 amendment, and eliminate the $50 fee the state charges patients to obtain or renew a patient card. Lastly, Governor Sarah Sanders declined to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage for women who recently gave birth in Arkansas. Arkansas is one of the only four states that cuts off Medicaid to new mothers 60 days after they give birth. 46 states take advantage of federal funding to provide eligible new mothers health care coverage under Medicaid for a full year. You can read more about each of these stories and more by going to arctimes.com. Finally today, endorsements. Yeah, I went to um, Smashed and Stacked over in Petaway today. Fantastic. Highly recommended. Great burgers. So my endorsement is The Great Believers. It's a book by Rebecca Mackay. And it's so good that I get disappointed in myself every night when I get too sleepy to keep reading and I have to go to sleep. It is great so far. It was a National Book Award finalist I'm and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And um, I'm not sure why it didn't win. But it's about kind of the early days of the AIDS crisis. And um, it's kind of amazing at how, how far we've come and all of the pretty horrible stuff that we try to forget. Um, but um, about, I'm about halfway through, and it's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, um, I'd like to endorse uh, a Substack uh, by David Ramsey, a former Arkansas Times writer. He has been, he's come and he's gone and, and come again for us. And he recently was reporting on Arkansas Learns for us, but has stepped away from that for a while. But uh, he is continuing to write. His Substack is called Tropical Depression, and uh, you can find a link in the, in the show notes. I guess what I love about, I mean, I love David's writing. He's, he's a, he writes very intelligently about policy and politics, but really, you know, when he's writing about music and life and art, he's at his best, I think. And Tropical Depression is not about education policy or Medicaid policy, which is what he's written about a lot in the past. It's about, you know, mostly it's about country music and um, stuff that, that he's reading or watching. You know, as I get older, I find, like, you know, I listen to less and less music and, like, having somebody make intelligent recommendations for good stuff is like ever more valuable. So, um, I go, I go to tropical depression to like when I want to get a playlist or get a, a tip on a, on a new track that I haven't heard about before. So, um, check it out. 
That's the show for today. Thanks for listening to the Arkansas Times Week in Review podcast. See you next week.